so this week and next week, we're going to talk about this passage, and then Father's Day, we're going to talk about Father's, uh, Father's Day message specifically. So I'm going to throw it at you. I've done a lot this morning already. Uh, what, if you were to describe a father, how would you describe him? Loving. Just throw it out. Nice. Good. Does that make you feel good? Yeah, it does. Good. I heard someone say kind over here. Always there. Father's always there. Yeah. A man who loves and cares. Good. Provider. Strong. What was it? Hardworking. Teacher. Man of God. Hopefully. Family leader. Funny. <laughs> I like that one. Anyone else? This is good. This is like, I, my ears couldn't keep up with them. What was it? Comforting. I like it. Good. Anything else? Anyone else? Don't want to cut anyone off? Generous. I need to take a couple more sips of water so you all can keep talking. Anyone else? Helpful? Good? Yeah. What was it? Nicest dad ever. Boy, you're getting a lot of points today. <laughs> These are all things that fathers should be. Yes? Yes, all things fathers should be. Unfortunately, some people might have had a hard time with the question of defining what a father is because the dad in their life might not have been any of these qualities. He is a sinner. And possibly, you don't want to have anything to do with him because of all the hurt that he has done to you. Possibly, your dad was a sinner. And you stood at his grave. And when you stood at his grave, this burden lifted from your back because you realized he would not be able to harm you anymore. The hurt, even though you carry it with you, is now finally in the past. Unfortunately, those two situations are far too real and far too prevalent. We can talk in idealized language about a father, but that language is talking about what a father should be instead of what a father actually is most of the time. It's a standard that is set. And while so many dads do not meet the standard that God sets of what a dad or father should be, the standard is still there. And the standard should still be pursued by fathers across the board. And we should all be calling the fathers in our lives to live and meet this standard, however they can. Paul when speaking to the Corinthians, refers to himself as a father to the Corinthians. He says this because he planted the Corinthian church, just as he planted the church in Ephesus, and he planted the church in Crete, and he planted the church and helped with Antioch and all these other churches. He was a father to them, spiritually speaking. So, that brings an additional level to this fatherhood discussion. Not only are fathers called to a certain standard in Scripture, but spiritual fathers, spiritual leaders, are called to a specific standard. 
just because I don't want to throw fathers under the bus too much, these next two weeks, as we discuss fatherhood, I'm going to specifically apply them to spiritual leaders, because Paul is speaking of himself as a spiritual leader. We could define a spiritual leader as a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, a mentor. Basically, it's anyone who has someone looking up to them and trying to model their life out of this person is this spiritual leader. And while I am applying this to spiritual leaders, and we can apply it to fathers, uh, the standard that we're going to talk about, anyone can benefit from a closer look at their lives and how they meet this standard. So, that introduction being said, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 21. Paul writes, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Excuse me. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind, me, remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? This week, we're going to talk about how a father is to be an example. Next week, we're going to talk about how a father is to bring correction. This week is a father is to be an example. Paul writes to the Corinthians in verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. At first glance, at that small sentence, it sounds kind of proud. We don't expect people to walk around and say, Hey, look at me. I'm so great. You should imitate me. If I stood up here and said, look at me, I'm so great, you should imitate me, you all would probably walk out the door. I would hope. My sister definitely would. <laughs> Normally we think of a spiritual leader as someone who says, hey, let's follow Christ. Imitate him. That's what Paul said in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Ephesians 5 verse 1, Paul says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. This is God, follow him. But the Corinthians, to the Corinthians, Paul says, imitate me. Why in the world would Paul say that? As humans, we naturally imitate other humans. That's what we naturally do. We could say, yes, I'm reading my Bible every day, I am praying, I am imitating Christ. And that might be our intention. But truthfully, we are just merely imitating someone else who we think is like Christ. Because we have a hard time imitating something that we do not see. So we are subconsciously looking around and grabbing characteristics and traits from people around us and trying to mold this Christ-like figure that we will then model our life after. That's what we naturally do. If we do not intentionally grasp someone and say, I'm going to follow him, we will naturally subconsciously grasp 
anyone we want to. It can be very dangerous because if we're not careful, we will imitate someone who is not a picture of Christ, but someone who is a picture of sinful humanity. And so modeling them, we will begin to live in a way that is against God and talk in a way that is against God, against the way of Christ. And it doesn't stop there because someone else is subconsciously or intentionally following our example. And so they're going to begin not following Christ with their life also. And it's this never-ending spiral into doom and destruction. It's, we need to be careful who we imitate because we will imitate someone. The s- people that we will subconsciously imitate if we do not pick them could be a friend, it could be a sibling, could be someone from school, a coworker. It could be our parents. More often than not, we will naturally, without thinking about it, imitate our parent, whether our father or our mother. And those who are little kids in here, I'm so sorry because you're doomed to follow your parents. Though, this guy over here, he's great. You should follow him. (laughs) Think about people in the Bible. Abraham. Uh, Things were hard in Canaan, and Abraham moved to Egypt because there was food there. And he looked around at the Egyptians, and he started getting scared. He thought the Egyptians were going to kill him because his wife was beautiful, and they would kill him and steal his wife. He didn't want that. So he convinced his wife to lie and say that she was his sister. Technically, she was his half-sister, but we're not going to go into all the convoluted ways people married back then. They did it. They moved away from Egypt, went to Canaan. Things got hard, left Canaan, went to a place called Gerar. Abraham looked around, said, huh, I think it's going to happen again. People are going to kill me because of my wife. Convinced Sarah to lie again. She was quite the woman. He was quite the man. God protected them, protected Sarah, her integrity, her virtue. I would think that God would have smacked Abraham offside the face and disciplined him in good, but he showed Abraham grace, and through that, Abraham finally realized that God was the one who provided. God was the one protected, and he never did it again. It's interesting to note that both these times in Egypt and in Gerar, Abraham's second son, Isaac, was not born yet. Was not born. Okay. Fast forward several years. Isaac is born. Isaac grows up. Abraham dies. Hard times hit. Isaac picks up his bags, moves to a place called Gerar. Recognize the name? Yeah, good. God appears to Isaac bodily and says, Isaac, I'm the one who provides. I'm the one who protects. Trust me. Isaac said, okay, God, thanks for telling me, and goes off and does his, wrong, his own thing. Guess what he does in Gerar? He's afraid for his life because his wife is beautiful. Convinces his wife, who is not his half-sister, but who's his second cousin three times removed, I believe, to lie and say that she is not his wife, but his sister, People follow their parents, whether they want to or not. Think about David, not my son. David was a king of Israel. 
He had several wives and several concubines. And having all of that, he went and committed adultery with a gal by the name of Bathsheba. His kids grow up. One of his sons rapes his sister. Another son, after momentarily taking the throne from David, sleeps with all of David's concubines. And then another son, Solomon, has the most wives and concubines of any king in Israel, close to a thousand. People imitate their parents, whether they think they're doing it or not. I have a good friend who's lived 40 years longer than I have. When I was thinking about getting married to Maggie, I was talking with him a lot. And he was sharing me, with me some marriage advice. And he said that he and his wife, several years into their marriage, realized that whenever certain marriage situations happen, such as confident conflicts and other stuff like that, he would start acting like his dad without knowing it, and she would start acting like his, her mom. And they re- stopped, and they realized what they're doing is not godly because the example that they're following was not godly examples of how it is to live in a Christian way with your husband and wife. So they decided whenever he started acting like his dad, she would call him Bill. And whenever she started acting like her mom, he would call her Bertha. And it would snap them out of it because they realized they wanted to follow Christ, not this example, not this ungodliness that they're subconsciously following. Paul says that he is a father to the Corinthians and the Corinthians should imitate him instead of the ungodliness around them. In the same way, a spiritual leader is to live their lives in a way that others can imitate. There to be someone who can say, follow me, because in following me, you will follow Christ. There are three main areas that the, Paul urged the Corinthians to imitate him in, and consequently three main areas that spiritual leaders should be concerned about being a good example. The first area is be an example in worldview. Spiritual leaders should be an example in worldview. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul is not trying to change the Corinthians' behavior. He has a lot of behavior change that he's saying, hey, change your life this way, change your life this way. But he always goes back to the foundation of the behavior because it doesn't matter if your actions change if the foundation below the actions haven't changed. We're just whitewashed tombs full of rotting bones, as Jesus said. Paul is trying to change the foundation of the behavior. He's trying to change the way the Corinthians view the world and trying to change their place in it. Two weeks ago, we discussed briefly how a believer in Christ identifies with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Next week, we're going to baptize some people who are publicly declaring that they are identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in salvation. When we identify with Jesus' sacrifice, his death, we're saying that his death was our death. Yes, the penalty of sin was paid as Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. There's nothing we have to do to earn that. All we have to do is place our faith in Jesus and we are saved. But his death is literally our death. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we have said that we have died to the things of this world. 
We have died to the sin of this world. We have died to the priorities of this world. We have died to the desires of this world. We have died to the reasoning and logic of this world. Christ's death is our death. We have died with him literally. Not only is his death our death, but his life is our life. He is currently sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for the fullness of time where he will come in, conquer everything, and usher us into his eternal kingdom of paradise. That's what he is waiting for, and that is what he is bringing. His life is our life, which means we have died to this world, we live our lives for the next life that is to come. We live our lives for that life instead of this life. We live according to eternal values, eternal desires, eternal truths, eternal relationships. This is who we are. So having died with Christ and being raised to walk in a newness of life, the way we view the world, the way we see our place in the world should substantially change, if that is true. My mom has a pair of sunglasses that she absolutely loves. It has a yellow tint to them. And so when she puts it on, it seems like sunshine all over the place. It's happiness. It's like some people, when they see my nice yellow car, get happy. Other people throw up. <laughs> she puts on this, these glasses and her perspective of the world changes through what she sees. When we are followers of Jesus Christ, our perspective of the world and the way we see our place in it should change just like we're putting on sunglasses. A spiritual leader should model this change perspective. But what does this change perspective actually look like practically? Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus said his follower will have a changed perspective that causes him to take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a, a figure of speech in our language where we say, oh, this is my cross to bear. And lots of times people will talk about a physical sickness or problem with their body or strained or broken relationship. That's is my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. The cross is a mentality. It's an understanding that to follow Jesus means to follow him wherever it leads, even to suffering and even to death. This death could be a death of our plans, our desires, our priorities, our ideas, dying to all of that, accepting Christ in his ways completely. The death could be a death of relationships, as our choice to follow Jesus wherever he leads will bring broken relationships, whether with family or with friends. The death could be our own death. Last week we had Voice of the Martyrs come and speak and we saw stories and heard stories about people who willingly gave up their lives because they were followers of Jesus and they weren't going to change. It might happen. Jesus is issuing a call to those who would follow him and saying, come, follow me. And you may face the loss of friends, family, reputation, career, and possibly even your own life. And if we have that change of world saying, no, this is what my life is, and this is my place in it, 
It will force us to face the questions of, are we willing to follow Jesus, if, even if it means losing some of our closest friends? Are we willing to follow Jesus, even if it means alienation from our family? Are we willing to follow Jesus, even if it means the loss of our reputation, or losing our job, or even losing our life? Are we willing to follow Jesus? This change in worldview says, you know, the world is lost and it's going to hell. It provides nothing for me. Jesus provides everything. Therefore, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live for eternity, seeking all I need in Jesus and doing what I can to lead the world to Jesus, embracing the suffering that comes from that, what will. I will take up my cross daily and follow him. This is the change in worldview. This is the change in seeing where my place is in my life. I think of the song, many of you know it, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Second verse says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. Everything in our life is to be filtered through that lens. The choices we make, the priorities we have, the attitudes we exhibit, the way we face the hardship of this life, grief, everything is filtered through this worldview of following Jesus with the cross on our back. And when we face hardship and suffering, for taking this route, for embracing this worldview, we continue on because of our perspective, because of our worldview. Spiritual leaders, fathers, everyone, are we modeling this perspective to the world around? If we have this worldview, we will then act accordingly. So spiritual leaders are not only to be example in worldview, but they'll be example in what we do. Paul says in verses 16 to 17, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul lived distinctively as a follower of Jesus Christ. There was no one ever who said, oh yeah, I've seen Paul, I've interacted with him. Yeah, I know he's a Christian, but eh, I don't see it. It didn't happen with him. I was in a coffee shop one day. Normally, I don't share stories of people who talk with me, but this happened in a public area with lots of other around it, so it was a public thing. So don't worry. If you're going to talk with me sometime, I'm not going to share your stories all over the place. Maybe in the newspaper, but that's... <laughs> I was sitting working on my sermon at the coffee shop, and there's two guys sitting over there, and they were talking about life, and their language was very colorful. I'll just leave it at that. 
and one of them turned to me after about half an hour or so and said, hey, what you doing over there? Where, where, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on my sermon. I'm a pastor here in town. He's like, oh, really? Immediately, his language like cleaned up. <laughs> and he, but he turned to me and he started talking about how much faith meant to him. Now, he went to church every Sunday and all, this, all these stories in life of how God has carried him through all these sorts of things. After talking about five minutes, five minutes about this, his friend looked at him and said, I never knew faith meant so much to you. It's one thing to say that we are Christian and to show it Sunday mornings when we're around other Christians, but it's another thing to live the rest of the week that way, to make dead sure that those who are interacting with us know that we are followers of Christ beyond a doubt, carrying our cross on our back. It's what we're supposed to do. We as humans, we love life. We like our routines. We like our comfort. We like our security. We like our culture. And we like our pet sins. I have some pet sins that God's convicting me on that I'm trying to change. I like them. I don't want to kick them out. But we're supposed to. If we consider our life like a sword or a knife, I was going to bring this big buoy knife with me, but I said, mm, there's going to be kids here, especially my kids, and that would not be good. A good knife is kept polished, oiled, and shiny. You're not supposed to have any rust spots on that knife. Too often, we as Christians say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, I will show my life to be a follower of Jesus Christ, except for that spot. I like that spot. I like that rust spot. I'm going to let that spot rust out because it is comfortable for me. I'm used to it being there, and it really doesn't affect the rest of the knife. And you know what? God's a God of grace. Therefore, he'll let me keep that spot because he's a God of grace. I'm going to be okay. I'm okay with the spot. God's okay with the spot. Pretty soon, you know what happens to that knife if you keep that rust spot? Anyone want to say? It does. It rusts through, takes over the whole knife. Same with our life. A spiritual leader is supposed to be an example in our action. One of the ways we do that is being an example in how we pursue Christ. Paul said, I want to know Christ. The spiritual leader has a thirst because he knows that the only way that he can live the Christian life is first if he is pursuing Christ passionately himself. One of my heroes is a guy by the name of Ramesh Richard. He is from India. And he travels around the world fellowshipping with third world country pastors, training them in theology, giving them encouragement because they have nothing. And he does it. And he goes all around the world and he collects fountain pens from every country. And he carries a fountain pen with him. And I've begun to carry one. Here's it right here. Fountain pen. It's a metaphor for his life. You see, for the fountain pen to work correctly, the tip has to be clean. It must. If you do not keep the tip clean, that pen will blot, and then it will plug, and it won't work anymore. Same with our life. If we do not keep our life clean, it will not work. The fountain pen needs to be continually refilled for it to work. When it runs out, it can't do anything. Any, everyone's life is busy, and everyone who is dedicated to ministry is busy and hectic, and it's easy to run out. We need to constantly be going to Christ, 
getting filled with our life for us to, for it to work. And then finally, the fountain pen does not work unless it is in the hands of the author. It can do nothing on itself. I am just a man. You all just people. Until Christ picks us up and decides to use us. This man, along with other godly men, have modeled to me the necessity of pursuing Christ, spending quality time with him so that I, in turn, can have the fullness to turn around and be used by him and minister to others. A spiritual leader is an example in, how, in action how he pursues Christ. A spiritual leader is an example in action in how he interacts with fellow Christians. Paul is, consist, is consistent whenever he's around fellow Christians. He constantly strove to show unity to brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where they were, no matter who they were. He constantly strove to show the truth of Christ in a loving way. Whenever they strayed from godliness, whenever they need encouragement, he showed grace, gentleness, humility, integrity with everyone consistently. As I said, we all have this temptation to live one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week. We have a temptation to live one way in public and another way at home. I find it fascinating to talk with parents about their home life and then turn around and talk with their kids and see how it lines up. A spiritual leader is to be an example how he interacts with fellow Christians wherever or whenever it is. A spiritual leader is to be an example in action how he pursues Christ. A spiritual leader is to be an example in action in how he interacts with the lost. The Corinthians were blessed because they knew Christ, Paul before they were Christians, and they knew him after. And so they were able to see, was Paul the same? Or did he live differently around non-believers than he lived with non-Christians? And they found that he set a consistent standard. Our call to godliness does not change depending on who is sitting at the table with us. If a non-Christian comes, we should be doing the same thing we are doing with Christians, talking the same thing, talking with the same subjects, praying. Everything we would do with Christians, we should be doing a non-Christian so the ungodly will see this person's the same, they have something different, and I want to know why they are the way they are. If we don't have this attitude, that they might think we don't care enough about our faith, and then they won't want to have what we have either. A spiritual leader is to be an example in action, in worldview, but spiritual leader is also to be an example in conversation. In conversation. Paul says in verses 16 to 17, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's worldview affected his action, his way of life, but also affected what he said, what he taught. In Colossians chapter 2, he talks about a vigilance that is kept over what we say. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In these verses, he talks about what we say towards God and what we say towards others. He says that he devotes himself to a conversation with God and he makes sure that his conversation with others is full of grace. He's being an example to the churches in his life. A spiritual leader is an example in our conversation. In conversation, it pertains to the words that we say, 
pertains to the word, which words we say and the way that we say them. Paul is consistent in the message that he brings to every church that he interacts with. He is consistently showing people the gospel. He's consistently showing how the, our lives should change because of the gospel. The entire letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians is not a surprise to them because he has heard, they've heard it when he was with them. And they heard it when they interacted with the other churches around them. This is the same message he told to the Ephesians and the Thessalonians and the Colossians and the Galatians and the Laodiceans and the Cretans and all those other churches. It's the same message he's consistently shared. One of the best compliments that anyone can give their pastor is to come up and say, hey, pastor, I have a question for you, but I know what you're going to say because he is consistent. A spiritual leader is the example in conversation in the words that we say that we're always saying and saying the same truth. We are to be an example in which words we say. Paul comes down pretty hard on word choice in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 to 32. Ephesians 4 25 to 32. He says, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The words that we say show our worldview. If we are someone who consistently builds people up, we're showing that we're followers of Christ. But if we're someone who is consistently tearing people down with our words, we're not showing that we're followers of Jesus Christ. A spiritual leader is to be example in conversation, in the words we say, in which words we say, finally, how we say those words. In the Colossian passage I read earlier in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Our conversation should always be full of grace. And this is hard because most of the time we're around people or we're in situations that we do not want to show grace. Cue any illustration you want to hear about kids, siblings, spouses, politics, schools, work things, pastors, stuff, anything you want to about situations where you do not want to show grace. As a spiritual leader, we're to be example in our conversation. What we say, which words we say, how we say it. So, with that in mind, turn to someone near you. Doesn't matter who. Turn to someone near you and say, I'm sorry. You are very hesitant. Now that you've said, I'm sorry, say, I will do a better job with my tongue. Doesn't everyone feel better now? Yes? A spiritual leader is to be an example in worldview, to be an example in action, he's to be an example in conversation. We are all humans, whether we're spiritual leaders, fathers, or followers of Christ. We are all humans, and we will not be perfect. 
nor will we be perfect examples of Christ. I know there's going to be one day that my kids are going to grow up and they're going to come to me and they're going to say, Father, you hurt me when you did this. I know it's going to happen. But we all should be going in the right direction. And when we come up short, we should be an example in repentance of saying, yes, that was wrong what I did. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. And from this moment on, I'm going to do better. Who are we imitating? Who are we imitating? And what example are we leaving to others? The first Sunday of the month, we celebrate our amazing salvation by taking communion together. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ, our example, came to earth 2,000 years ago and lived the perfect, sinless life. He showed us what it means to follow the Father in heaven perfectly. And then he willingly gave up his life. He died on the cross for our sins. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. This amazing gift that Jesus gives through his life and his death is not something that we can earn. None of us can be good enough to get to heaven. None of us can say enough prayers to get to heaven. None of us can be sprinkled with enough water to get to heaven. None of us can go to confirmation enough or go to church enough or go to confession enough or do anything enough to earn our salvation. We can't. We are sinful human people desperately in need of a savior. Which is why John records for us in John chapter one that whoever believes in his name, whoever receives him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. We get to come to him in faith and say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation and I turn away from everything else that I thought would help me and I turn to Jesus alone. The minute we do that, we are saved. From that moment in time, for all of eternity, and all the blessings that come from that salvation is ours. The hope, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the long-suffering, everything comes and is poured on us. And we get to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ from that moment of faith into all of eternity. So that we don't have to go through a priest, we don't have to make a sacrifice we can come to Jesus every day, all day, and gain the help that we need for that moment. I'm so grateful that I'm saved. And I hope you are too. Once a month, we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and we celebrate that salvation. We take communion. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. We as Calvary Bible Church practice what's called open communion. 
That means if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're not trusting in anything else, just him, you are welcome to join us in taking communion because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. If there's never been a moment in your life where you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're still trusting in something else to save you and you didn't realize that until today, I urge you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Accept him today. Tell someone about it and let communion be that first step as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're not willing to make that step and you want to talk to someone about it, I ask that you let the bread and the juice pass by because we don't want you to be a hypocrite and to say with your action that you're a follower of Jesus Christ when you are not. We're not doing this to judge you. We're just trying to keep you honorable. Then come and talk to someone about it so that today will not go by without you turning to Christ. We also, as Calvary Bible Church, do not believe that there's anything special with these elements. The cracker is just a cracker. It does not change into the body of Jesus Christ. The juice is just juice. It does not change into the blood of Jesus Christ. These things do not save us. They do not make us more holy. They are, as Paul wrote, simply a remembrance. Because God knew that we as humans needed something physical for us to remember his sacrifice. So we do something physical and we bite down on the cracker and we hear it crack and we remember that Jesus' bones were pulled apart. We drink the juice and we feel the bitterness and we remember Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. And in a way, we are joining him, reliving that situation through communion. It's a remembrance, nothing else. We also commemorate that God wants us to be unified when we take communion together. Jesus in John 17 prayed that his followers would be one even if he and the Father are one. So we pass the crackers and we each take one and we hold it. We wait till everyone's served and then we eat it together symbolizing that we want to be one under him. We each take a cup and we hold it until everyone's served, then we drink it together, symbolizing that we want to be one under him. That's one reason why we take some time to pray before communion. We, we ask God, we thank him for our salvation, but we ask him if there's any way we've lived against him this week, and we beg his forgiveness, ask him his strength to change, but we also pray if there's anyone who is a brother and sister in Christ that we have something against or has something against us. And if he has revealed it to us, this week we make it right. We eat and drink a promise that we will make it right. Every month I say this, and every month I'm so grateful that God is a God of grace. Because truthfully, if all of us were honest, none of us would be able to take communion. But he gives us the grace we need. And when we don't follow him, whether in our lives or in our relationships, he reminds us of what it means to be a Christian and to live Christianly. So will you take some time and pray with me?
Father, we are so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for looking down at us, humanity, and wanting to have a relationship with us, wanting to restore us to what you created us to be, knowing that we could not do anything. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. We might become one with your suffering, and one day we might walk in paradise because of his sacrifice alone. Lord, thank you for not forcing us to do anything for it because we cannot. And thank you for calling us to you. Thank you for saying that we are yours, we are your children, we are the sheep of your pasture. Thank you that you are the God who is with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are the God of grace and mercy and love, and you teach us how to be that towards each other. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate this amazing sacrifice, that you would renew us, that you would remind us again what it means to be in awe and in love with you more than anything else, and you would remind us what it means to be unified with your people for the sake of your gospel and the reputation of your name. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If I could ask Gene and Tim to come up and help. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The plastic cup has gluten-free wafers.